Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 9 through the very beginning of 12, um, and just picking up where we left off from last night. And um, I just want to say, as always, if you're a person of faith and you're watching this, I hope that uh, this will really open your eyes to the reality of Scripture and also the complexity and the, the beautiful storytelling of Scripture. If you're a skeptic and you're not sure that you believe Genesis, it's just a bunch of fairy tales, uh, that sort of thing, I hope this will get uh, cause you to take a second look and see that maybe this is describing uh, some real things that happened, and maybe also there are some other things here for me, even if I'm unsure of their veracity. I think that you can be sure of their veracity, but even if you are unsure, I think there's still things here for you to take a look at. And uh, as always, if you're anxious or lonely, I really hope that going through the story of Genesis will uh, just bring you a lot of peace. So I'm feeling good and I'm feeling a lot of joy right now. I hope that you're feeling that way. Um, just as always going to remind you of a couple other things that I've got going on. Fivecoffeesinabook.com is a free conversation. It's like a little mini book club that you can have with friends. It's really good to do with people during this time of sort of isolation. I don't know about you, but my phone's not really been ringing off the hook. I've had a couple of family members call. I've had a couple of people text. Um, my friend Timothy Collins texted me today just to see how I was doing and how my family was doing. And um, just, I don't know what prompted him to do that, but it was just really appreciated. And so I hope that you guys will take the opportunity to do that for other people and reach out to others because um, we're all feeling kind of isolated. We're all kind of anxious. We're all a little unsure about the future. And so now is a great way, a great time to reach out and um, really develop some deep friendships where you can encourage other people. Fivecoffeesinabook.com is an easy way to do that. It was developed to be done at a coffee shop or something like that, but it can certainly be done over Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, over the phone. You get a free ebook. Uh, the discussion guide is free. Uh, you can do it in five successive days. You can, you can sit down and do it all at once for all I care. Uh, but I really, I really just want to see people talking to each other face-to-face, -face, uh, at least at this time, over um, Skype or FaceTime or something. And uh, just making friends for life and really checking in on everybody. So there's a free resource for you. 
another free resource, skidmore.substack.com. These are just little short stories that I've written. You may find them entertaining or give you some things to uh, think about. There's some things for free up there. You can go to subscribe and you can subscribe for free and you get them delivered to your inbox on Saturdays. And uh, as always, I've got books on Amazon and Apple Books. Uh, I've got merch, t-shirts and stuff. I'm wearing one of my t-shirts today. And I think coffee mugs are 60% off on Zazzle today. So if you go to my website and go down to where the merch is, you can get you a cheap coffee mug today. Um, they're really beautiful. And uh, I have a lot of them in my trunk, but you can order them today for 60% off. So, all right. So let's look at Genesis. And I want to read one other thing, which is this is a class. So this is not, um, sometimes uh, it'll be more inspirational and sometimes it may be a little less structured because there's some material to kind of get through. And so I suspect this period will be a little more uh, informational, won't feel quite as structured, although I do have some encouraging things to say from the material. Um, but we're looking at um, two sections of scripture that might require a little a uh, little setup, a little uh, talking about, a little um, explanation. So we're going to begin in um, Genesis 9 in verse 18. So this is towards the end of the Noah story. We've already had the ark and the getting off the ark and the rainbow and all those kinds of things. Now we get into a little darker side of the Noah story. So I put in the Facebook post that this is not for children, we're going to be discussing uh, some kind of adult things and some things uh, possibly dealing with sexual assault in the next thing that we're going to read, because that's what the story is about. So I just want to tell you that now. So if you're listening with the speakers on, you have children nearby, or if that's something that you don't want to listen to, then now's the time to skip over this or go watch something else or get them out of the room, put your buds in, whatever. Okay. Warning has been given. So we're in Genesis chapter nine. This is sort of the darker side of the Noah story at the end of the Noah story. And uh, I'll just read and then we'll talk about some of the things that are happening here. Beginning in verse 18, Genesis 9, 18. And the sons of Noah who came out from the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth spread out. And Noah a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and exposed himself within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a cloak and put it over their shoulders and walked backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces turned backward so they did not see their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowliest slave shall he be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, unto them shall Canaan be slave. May God enlarge Japheth, may he dwell in the tents of Shem, unto them shall Canaan be slave. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, then he died. Okay. So we often hear the story of Noah's Ark and the animals in Vacation Bible School. This obviously, for obvious reasons, not a Vacation Bible School story, okay? 
But this is another reason to, to read wide swaths of text. It's also another reason to take a book of the Bible and go through it in a linear fashion or to go through the whole Bible in a linear fashion. It means you can't skip over sections like this that are more difficult to deal with and more difficult to read and to understand. But I'm here to help you read it and understand it. And uh, so let's let's dive in. So what's going on here? So what we want to do a lot of times when we read something like this is we fixate on the thing that we have a question about. Okay. So we'll go and we'll look at this and we'll say, hmm, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness. Well, what does that mean? And we look at that phrase, saw his father's nakedness. Hmm, what does that mean? And we try to decipher what it means. Now, I had a friend of mine who is um, a wonderful disciple, loves Jesus more than almost anybody that I know, missionary heart, missionary mindset, is uh, living basically in poverty and working a construction job so that he can be a worship leader at a church where he feels God has called him, a church that um, doesn't pay him very much, if anything. And um, he's there because he believes that's where God wants him to be. This is somebody who, so this, I'm not talking about a pew sitter here. I'm talking about a really devoted a disciple, someone who is always in scripture, someone who is always learning from it, reading it daily. And he once brought a verse to me and he said, we, we happened to be at the coffee shop at the same time. And he said, Hey, what do you think this verse means? And he showed it to me and I read the verse and I thought, oh, that is kind of confusing. What is that? And so I kind of read a little bit before it and a little bit after it. And I think it was in one of Paul's letters. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, obviously that's what he's talking about. And then I thought, okay, well, <laughs> if it's so obvious, why hasn't it occurred to my friend? And so I said, have you looked at the verse before it and the verse after it? And he said, uh, oh, well, no, it just hadn't occurred to him to do that. And I don't say that as a slight against him. I say that as a slight against all of Christendom, <laughs> honestly, because of the way we've been taught to study scripture. We've been taught to really get down in the minutia of this word and that word. And what does the Greek of this thing mean? And what is this little phrase? And all those things can be important and can help us decipher something. But if you're not looking at it in context, you'll never know what it means. You'll never know what it means unless you look at it in context. And so you have the phrase itself, you have the context that it's sort of nested in, then you have the story that it's a part of, then you have the book that it's a part of, then you've got the whole Bible, and then you've got sort of all of creation. You've got all these contexts that you must consider to really correctly interpret what it is that you're reading. So if we come to a section like this, where there's this really problematic story, and we focus on this one phrase, saw his father's nakedness, and then we sit around and stroke our chin and try and figure out what does that phrase mean? We're not going to solve anything that way. We've got to look at all the context. Not just of this story, but really of the whole Bible, particularly the rest of the book of Genesis, and try and figure out, oh, what does this mean? What's happening here? Well, every time we've seen Ham's name so far, it says Ham, the father of Canaan. Okay? So what we're not hearing about is Canaan. Now, we're we're hearing his name, but we don't see this Canaan doing anything anywhere. We just see Ham doing things. Okay? So just because Canaan's name is mentioned doesn't mean... Canaan exists yet. Okay, for instance, uh, my grandfather played football for the University of Alabama, and he played in the 20s. Okay, now that's my dad's dad. Now, that doesn't mean that my dad was alive in the 20s. I only say that because you know me and my dad, and so that gives you a point of reference for who this other person is that you may not know. 
So for the people who would be the first readers of this book, well, they would have known who Canaan is because there's the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, that sort of thing. But who's this Ham guy? Well, the author is telling you, here's Ham. By the way, he's the father of Canaan. That doesn't mean Canaan is around yet. It just means that's who this Ham guy is. Okay? So we don't see Canaan anywhere yet. Okay? So now we're going through the story. Okay, here's Ham. He's the father of Canaan. And what does Ham do? So first of all, Noah, man of the soil, says he was the first to plant a vineyard. The text uh, sort of literally says there he began to plant vineyards. But in the Hebrew, in the context, it sort of means he be he began the idea of doing that. He was the first one to do that. So translating it, he was the first to do this is probably a better translation than just a direct one. Anytime you're doing translation, you're doing a little bit of theology and or a little bit of academia. And so um, that's what you see sort of happening here. So Noah's kind of the first guy to grow a vineyard. He grows some uh, grapes, makes some wine and becomes drunk and somehow exposes himself within the tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Okay, Sham and Japheth go in, they put a cloak over their shoulders, they walk backwards so they don't see anything, and they cover their father's nakedness. They don't see it. Then they come, come out, Noah wakes up. But then it says something interesting, and it says, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So apparently, Ham is the youngest son. So what is it that this youngest son has done to Noah? Okay. There's a couple of ways to interpret this. Uh, three, in fact. One is to interpret it exactly as it's depicted in the text with no euphemisms or ellipses. So an ellipsis, you know, is uh, like dot, dot, dot. When you see that in text, it means that there's something missing here, right? So if you see a quote in the newspaper and you, it's, it's, in, it's in quotes, but in the middle there's dot, dot, dot. That means something has been removed from that section in order to make the quote shorter and better for print, okay? So when we talk about an ellipsis in the text, we're talking about something that has been removed. And I'm not talking about something that's been removed from the original text. I'm saying the narrator is skipping over some details for the benefit of the hearer. So I'm not talking about it. somebody's gone in and removed something that we're supposed to have. When I say ellipsis, I just mean the narrator has skipped over some things because you get the idea. The same the same idea as a euphemism, okay? So there's either a euphemism uh, or ellipsis happening here probably. So one of the three ways to interpret this is that there are no euphemisms and ellipses that uh, Ham goes in, sees his father naked, and that's the end of it. That was the big, gross, terrible thing that Ham did was just see his father naked. Okay, well, that's bad enough, but it certainly doesn't seem to, um, there's a lot of other things happening here that I, I don't think that's a good candidate for how to interpret this passage. Uh, another way to interpret this passage, and I think this is the way I've mostly heard it interpreted, is that Ham must go in and molest Noah in some way, that Noah is naked, he exposes himself, this text says, and Ham goes in and this idea of sees his father's nakedness. So when, when you uncover the nakedness of somebody in Hebrew text, when you see that phrase, uncover the nakedness of, it's pretty, almost always a euphemism for sexual activity. And so um, there's this idea that um, Ham has gone in and molested Noah in some way. Um, may, maybe, but I think the third explanation is the best explanation. And it's the most euphemistic and I can't be certain of any of these, 
But this is the one that I think makes the most sense because, again, of all the other contexts that's here. So let me make the case for the third one. Uh, another way of thinking about the uh, nakedness of his father is thinking about who his father would be having sexual relations with, and that would be Noah's wife, Ham's mother. And so uncovering the nakedness of Noah might not be uncovering Noah, his nudity, but might be uncovering the nakedness of the mother of Ham, of uh, Noah's wife, Ham's mother. Why do I think that that is the most likely possibility, even though that seems to be the farthest away from what we see directly in the language? Well, I think it's very euphemistic, the language. Very occasionally, I mean, the Bible's very blunt about many things. I mean, it's telling us some pretty graphic things that are happening here. But occasionally it will be euphemistic when the acting, the action that is going on is so horrific, it would not want to even put a picture of it in the mind of the hearer, lest they be tempted to go and replicate it. We see this again in Leviticus with Nadab and Abihu and their bringing of strange fire, which we're not really sure what that means. Pretty sure that that's a euphemism for they were doing some really bad things, so bad, we're not even going to talk about it. And that seems to be what's happening here. So why is why do I hold to that? Well, let's look at some of the other things that are happening. So um, or somewhere around verse 22, 23, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. So if you take that on face value, you can see Ham going into the tent and going, oh, you know, and walking in and go, hey, uh, dad's naked. Well, but then later, like his whole lineage is cursed. So that doesn't really make any sense. It also doesn't make any sense that Noah wakes from his wine and knows what his youngest son has done to him. Well, if Ham just kind of goes in the tent, sees that his dad's naked, like he hasn't really done anything to him. Right. So I feel like Ham has to kind of commit an act here in order for that verse to make any sense. So um, why would he tell his two brothers about it? Well, let's kind of go on and, and look at some other things. We'll kind of come back and answer that question. Uh, once Noah has seen what his youngest son has done to him, he says, cursed be Canaan, not cursed be Ham. Wait, isn't Ham the one that did something to him? He says, cursed be Canaan. Why is that? Well, this is the first time Canaan is actually referred to by somebody other than the narrator, right? So this is the first time that we get a sense Canaan actually now exists. Notice I didn't say that Canaan is has now been born. I just said that he exists. Because the way I interpret this passage is that Ham has gone in and has had sexual relations with his mother in an attempt to claim the patriarchy. Remember, the whole earth has been destroyed. There is only this family. And Ham goes in as the youngest who's got the short end of the stick, he's going to go in and have sexual relations with the mother to say, I'm the dad now. I'm in charge now. I'm the patriarch now. It's a little difficult for us to understand in a Western society why something like that might be important. But in Eastern society, it's critical. It's very important. In Eastern society, even today, you don't ask somebody, what do you do for a living? See, that's what we ask here in the West when we kind of want to know, okay, what part of society are you in? In the East, the question is, who is your father? Because it is lineage that sort of defines where you are in the social structure. And so what you see here is Ham trying to usurp the social structure and say, I'm the dad now. 
I'm going to take charge now where there's only a few people that maybe could do something about it. And so this is why he goes and tells his brothers. He does the despicable act and he comes out and he says, he tells his two brothers to tell them, I'm the dad now. And when Noah finds what he's done, one of the ways that he finds what he's done is because it seems that someone is now pregnant. And so if Noah's nakedness refers to Noah's wife, Ham's mother, it appears that Ham has impregnated his own mother and that Canaan is the product of that incestuous sin. So, cursed be Canaan. That's why it's cursed be Canaan and not cursed be Ham. Cursed be Canaan. And here's when you back out even farther and look at the greater context. Who is the greatest enemy of the Israelites in the Old Testament? It's the Canaanites. We'll look later in the genealogies and we'll see how Canaan breaks up into all these smaller people that are all the people that Joshua and the Israelites have to fight once they re-enter the promised land at the end of the, after the end of the Torah. Who are other uh, people that uh, the Jews have to fight? Well, what about the Ammonites and the Moabites? These are other enemies of the Jewish people and people with whom the Jews are not allowed to intermarry. Why? Where do the Ammonites and the Moabites come from? Well, we'll see later. They are products of incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. Lot, after escaping Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife turns into a pillar of salt. It's just him and his daughters living in a cave. The daughters fear they will never see a man ever again. They don't know what's going on in the rest of the world, that the rest of the world is just living their lives, going on about their business. They're living in fear, hiding in this cave. So they get their father drunk and they get impregnated by their father. They give birth to sons, one named Ammon, one named Moab. They're products of incestuous relationship. And that's why they're forbidden to marry into those groups. And again, I have to stress, this is not about genetics because we see later that Ruth, who is a what? A Moabitess. That Ruth, a Moabitess, comes into the Jewish people, adopts their worldview wants to be part of the Jewish people, so much so that she is in the lineage of King David. She is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So it's not about the the genetics or anything like that. It is about the worldview. It is about the clinging to the blessing or the clinging to the curses. That's what all of Genesis has been about thus far that we've looked at from the very first sentence. And that's what it'll be all the way through the Bible to the end of Revelation. That first sentence of Genesis, everything that comes after is just a retelling of that first sentence. And that's what we're seeing happen here in this story. Ham has separated from his family in an order to usurp it, probably because out of fear that he would be taken over by his older brothers. And in doing so, he makes his fate worse because now all of his lineage is going to be slaves to the other brothers. You see that in the curse? So, Just like Ammon and Moab, I'm pretty sure that is why Canaan is cursed in the same way and is such an enemy of the Jewish people because it represents the worst of chasing after sin. So I think that's how we have to interpret this passage. So again, the three options are, you know, just read it as it is. Uh, The second is that Ham molests Noah. And the third is that Ham rapes his mother and impregnates her. And that's where Canaan comes from. And I think that's the one that makes the most sense. All three of them, though, would represent Ham trying to usurp uh, the honor and dignity of his father. So really, the point is made no matter which interpretation you go with. But I think textually, that third interpretation is probably the best. Okay, that's enough of talking about that. So let's move on. 
by the way, let me point this out. This section here, beginning with Cursed Be Canaan, this is the first recorded speech of humans after the flood. So you have the first creation, and the first recorded speech is the human singing a love song to his wife. Then you have the destruction of creation. And the first speech is a curse to the children of uh, one of the living people. Very different set of circumstances here, right? So remember what I said, every story in Genesis thus far has been trying to do one thing, and that is to show you that whatever excuse you might make about people, about people trying to be good, it's just showing you over and over again, human beings are evil from their youth. Human beings are going to be selfish. They're made in the image of God. They're capable of great good, but they're always at some point, they're going to do something selfish. They're going to do something sinful. They're going to do something hurtful. Every single one of them, even the ones you think are going to be good, like Noah, even the ones that you think are going to be good, like Abraham, even the ones that you think are perfect and have no reason to sin, like Adam, they're all going to sin. It's just hammering that home over and over and over again. Okay, so then we get into Genesis chapter 10. And it is a genealogy of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And a little bit of story there, but uh, I'm not going to go on with that. Uh, it just points out some of the um, descendants of Canaan down in um, verse uh, 16 or so um, with the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, etc. Names that will be repeated over and over again once you get into uh, the conquests of the land of Canaan and that sort of thing. Um, so at the end of chapter 10, it just says, okay, and these are the sons of Shem. So it gives the genealogy of all three of the sons. It ends with the genealogy of the sons of Shem, but there's no dates here. There's no longevity. There's no, you know, how long each person lived. It's just sort of a collection of names. So we're going to, at the, let's go on to chapter 11. Chapter 11 ends with the lineage of Shem that has all the dates and everything, because that is the official lineage of the Jewish people. The Jewish people descend through Shem. He's the oldest of Noah's sons. And so that's how we track the lineage. And so it's important to know the ages there so that we have this, this idea of time, passage of time and dates and that sort of thing. So you have the sons of Shem before, but there's no dates. Now you have them dates. This is the official lineage. Well, sandwiched in between these two lineages of Shem is the, this very interesting story of the Tower of Babel. So let's take another little break here and let me talk to you for just a second about storytelling structure in the Old Testament. I think hopefully you'll find this interesting. I, as a filmmaker and a writer and a storyteller, find this incredibly interesting. And I'm trying to, I'm working it into the current book that I'm working on, actually. And um, I think you'll find it fascinating as well. And once I tell you about it, I think you'll see it all over the place. Okay. In fact, we may even go back and look at one place that we've already seen it. So um, this is the idea of chiastic structure. And so that's C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C, chiastic, or uh, in the noun form is chiasm. We're looking for a chiasm in the text. And so we see a perfect one right here in Genesis chapter 11, one through, I guess it's one through nine. Okay. Nine or ten. So the story of the Tower of Babel. Again, sorry, my uh, verse numbers are off the way that this uh, Bible has been done. So uh, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. It's a perfect chiasm. Okay, what is a chiasm? 
So there's a storytelling structure in, well, in Western stories, we have beginning, middle, end, right? You have, uh, we sort of set up a problem and the hero tries to uh, fix the problem. And then there's a resolution of some kind. All right. So the classic thing is cat gets stuck in a tree. You try to get the cat out of the tree and then the cat gets out of the tree. That's three X structure, right? Okay. So what's different about Old Testament story structure in particular, but you see this all the time in the New Testament as well. What's different about ancient story structure is it's beginning, middle, beginning. And it's actually very subtly different from the way we tell stories. And there's still a lot of overlap. And maybe it's just two ways of talking about the same thing. But let, let, let me show you on this piece of paper here. This is a little easier. So in a story, I'm going to flip over and make sure I'm showing you what you can see. Okay. So in a story, you would have thing A that happens. And then you have thing B that happens. And then you have thing C and then thing D. Then you have right here, this is the chi. So you see, I've got right here, it's uh, the Greek letter chi. C-H-I is the way we normally spell chi. But it's, it looks like our X, right? All right, so right here you have the chi. The chi is the event that changes everything. So we had the whole story going along, but now the chi changes everything. Then what essentially happens is the story is told in reverse order now that everything has been changed. So you Whereas you had A, B, C, D, now you have D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. So whatever was going on in D, you have it happen again, but it's a little different now because of the thing that has changed it. Uh, and when you lay it out in this fashion, you can see the shape here looks like the inside of the chi. That's where it gets its name, the chiastic structure, because it looks like an X. It looks like a cross. Okay, so it's a chiasm, chiastic structure. It'll make a little more sense once we look at it in the text. So let's do that. Genesis chapter 11, we're beginning in verse 1. Let me read it first, and then we'll go back and, sit and talk about how it's a chiasm. And all the earth was one language, one set of words. And it happened as they journeyed from the east that they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us bake bricks and burn them hard. And the bricks served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, that we may make us a name, lest we be scattered over all the earth." And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the human creatures had built. And the Lord said, as one people with one language, for all, if this is what they have begun to do, now nothing they plot to do will elude them. Come, let us go down and baffle their language there so that they will not understand each other's language. And the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel, for there the Lord made the language of all the earth Babel. And from there, the Lord scattered them over all the earth. So sort of what you see here is you see, again, sort of this chiastic structure. All the earth is one language, one set of words. They come together. They make bricks and make a building. So you have this sort of increasing productivity. And then they say that we may make us a name. They want to make a name for themselves. So then you have pride on top of the things that they have done. And then in verse four, you have the Kai and the Lord came down. That's what changes everything. So the Lord looks and says, hey, these are one people with one language and nothing they plot to do with elude them. So they've got a lot of pride going on. So again, this is the D prime. This is this, this is this pride, but now viewed from the Lord, from the Lord having come down. Let's go down there and 
baffle their language. Let's tear apart their language. Here they've built a building. Now they're going to tear apart the language. Let's baffle their language so they won't be able to understand each other. And then the Lord scattered them. So just as they came together, the Lord scattered them over all the earth. And now, just as they were one language in the beginning, now they are many languages. They are Babel. They cannot understand each other. So you see how this story is a almost perfect chiasm. A, B, C, D. Then the Lord comes down. D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. And sandwiched on either side of it is a lineage of Shem. So that kind of fits right into that chiastic model as well. It's letting you know the Lord coming down to destroy people's pride has something to do right here in between this lineage of Shem, possibly right in here between the stories of Noah and the story that we're about to read, which is who? Abram. So you had Ham, who was trying to make a name for himself. Now you have Abram. And what is he going to do? How is he going to respond to the laws and things that um, the Lord gives? Just got a few minutes left, so let's just keep going. Um, so as I said, at the end here of chapter 11, we have the lineage of Shem, and we have all the years and everything listed. So there's just a couple of names here that I want to point out that uh, might provide you with a few little aha moments and just to kind of help you understand some things. Uh, the first is um, about halfway through the lineage, there's this guy named Eber. Anybody ever heard of Eber? No reason you would have. Um, nothing really particular special about Eber. Uh, I'll show you uh, why he might be important in a, in a minute. It's probably the only reason he's important because we don't know anything about him. There's nothing here really about him except that he was somebody's son and he had a son. That's really all we kind of know. So if you go down the lineage following after Eber, you see that there's uh, somebody named uh, Peleg. All right. Peleg, that's an interesting name because uh, it means brook, but uh, it gives a little description uh, back in the, um, I think it's in the other, um, at the end of chapter nine, the other uh, lineage, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 10, the other lineage. It says that uh, Pelig was named that because that was when the world was divided. So um, that could mean two things. It could be referring to the Tower of Babel story where the world is all split up and divided. Another thing it could refer to is maybe there was some cataclysmic event, like an earthquake that actually literally divided the earth. Uh, like I say, the word Peleg means brook, um, but it comes from a root, which means to split apart or divide. So even though Peleg means brook, they're saying he was named that because the world was split apart. Uh, or divided. Uh, Dad and I were watching a program earlier on, I think it was a history channel uh, that was down around Masada, down around the Dead Sea, and they were looking at striations in uh, some of the uh, soil that was down there. And you could see very clearly times when there were earthquakes where all the soil was um, upset and on top of each other rather than in flat layers. So times when there was water in that place and there was uh, earthquakes. And the host asked the expert that he was with, um, were there periods of earthquakes dating to around 3500 BC, the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which would have been uh, not too long after the time of Peleg. And she said, oh yeah, absolutely. Now you got to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, History Channel also airs Ancient Aliens. So 
You got maybe a spoonful of salt or two. Okay. But just to show um, the reason that Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River are even there is because there are fault lines there and there have been earthquakes there. And so um, maybe this is when the Jordan River formed and the world was literally split apart with some people on one side of the river and some people on the other. Can't say that for sure. Reading into it a lot. Just letting you know that biblical names mean something. And they have to do with, and lots of times the text will tell you kind of what they mean or why they were named that way. They mean something, and it might be telling you something story-wise that you should know. And so I figure Peleg, the reason why we're told that he's named that, where we're not really given the reason why all these other guys are named what they're named, either is because it relates to the story of the Tower of Babel, or it might relate to the story of the Jordan River being formed. Because what more boundary is more important in Jewish history than the Jordan River? The uh, Jewish people uh, cross it twice. Um, Jesus crosses it, right? So this is a very important uh, body of water. And um, so I'm not saying that that is what happened. That's why he's named that. But I do bring all that up to say, these are real people. These are real people living in a real place. These are all real events. These are historical people. And uh, little details like this are what can kind of help us trust that, that it all fits right in with all the history and, and, and geology and everything that we know about that era from that time. So these are real things that happened. Likewise, there's real storytelling that's going on here, like chiastic structure. And that storytelling is taking the real things that happened and telling them to this in a certain way so that we'll understand a very real idea. That's what we're after is the idea. Because honestly, that a guy named Peleg lived and why he was named that, it's like, who cares, man, right? But if that is part of a story that is trying to communicate a greater principle about who God is, now that I need to know, okay? So for those of you who are people of faith, listening. I hope this strengthens your faith and reminds you that these are real people. I've stood in the place where a lot of these things have happened. I've been there. Okay. And these these things really happen in real places. And there's really masterful storytelling at work here that might be communicating things that you've never picked up on. If you are a skeptic and you think Genesis is just a bunch of fairy tales, then you should know, okay, even if you doubt the veracity of these very real things happen, you must understand there's some really masterful storytelling at work trying to communicate a principle. Can you at least apply the principle and see if there's any merit to it? It's worth at least checking out, even if you think it's a fairy tale. I don't. I believe in it uh, wholeheartedly, and I'll die for it. But uh, even if you doubted the veracity of the events, can't you see there is a greater principle that's happening here? And that is the main aim of the text. So when we see these storytelling things, we must ask the storytelling questions. Okay, We must ask, why these events? Why these people? Why is it told in this way? Why is the dialogue written in this way? I mean, we I don't think any of us expect that all of the dialogue in Scripture is exact word for word the way it was said back then. I mean, all, all the stories seem sort of like reductions of what the actual dialogue probably was, right? So why was the dialogue written in this way to portray that event? Why are things told to us in this order? Uh, who was the first audience for this work? What was their culture and context? And what purpose did this text, the way it's told, serve that first audience? These are all questions we have to ask to correctly interpret the deeper meanings of the passages. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is you can read right across the top, learn a lot, learn who Jesus is, come to find him as your Lord and Savior, be baptized, accept and become a disciple, you can do that just right off the top. But if you want this deeper study, you've got to start asking a lot of these questions or else you can develop some theology that's really bad and in some cases really destructive and harmful for other people. Okay? So that's why I want to look at, yeah, the real events that happened, but also the storytelling, the narrative style. 
Okay, still in this genealogy here in chapter 11. So Peleg is the son of a guy named Eber. And Eber is a Hebrew word that is later used to refer to the other side, meaning the other side of the river. That's another reason why I think Peleg, which means brook, might might be referring to the Jordan. And Eber is referring to people that come from the other side of the Jordan. So who's this Eber guy? Well, if you'll notice, there's Eber, and there's Peleg, and there's Ryu, and then there is Sirig, and then there is Nahor. That name starts to sound familiar. And then there is Terah, and then there is Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram, we know. Abram's the guy we're trying to get after, okay? So if you take all the dates, and I've done all the math for you. I'm not going to go through all the math. I just want to show you I have done the math, okay? Did scratch it out. So here is Eber being born. Okay, and then when he's 34, he gives birth to Peleg. Peleg at age 30 gives birth to Ryu, and so on and so forth until Abram is born. So at the time Abram is born, Eber is 225 years old. Okay? Now, some of the ancestors are still alive at this time, but Eber is still alive when the sixth generation is born, according to the ages and the dates that we have here. Abram, as you know, lives to be 100 before Isaac is born. Then Isaac is born. Isaac is 40 before he marries and so on and so forth. I think Jacob's 70 before anything starts going on in his life. So Eber is alive when these guys start establishing what is going to become the Jewish people. So why am I telling you this? Who's this Eber guy? Well, you might notice his name bears a resemblance to the word Hebrew. This is where we get the term Hebrew, we're pretty sure, because these people down here were called the Eberim. In other words, like the people of Eber, the sons of Eber, because Eber was still alive when they were beginning to perform the Jewish people. So even though Eber is not necessarily that important, he was the big granddaddy when these guys were starting to become important in this clan of people. And also, you can imagine, even though Abram leaves, as we're about to read, leaves his uh, family, leaves Ur, and goes off where the Lord tells him, and seeing that he's kind of on his own for the rest of that time, like I said, in Eastern society, it's very common. Somebody says, who are you? So I'm, I'm Abraham, son of Eber, right? Uh, I'm Isaac, son of Eber. I am Jacob, son of Eber, right? And so you could see in the society, they became to be known as the Eberim. And that's where we get the word Hebrew. And so that's where that name comes from. And it's all right here in the genealogy. It's all right here in the stories. So we go all the way through the genealogy and we land on a guy named Abram. And again, we know Abram. We like Abram. Abram's the guy we're going to stick with for the next couple of lessons. Thus ends sort of the mythic stories at the beginning of Genesis, the epic stories. We started with the creation of the entire universe, and now we have shrunken in and shrunken in and shrunken in and shrunken in, and now we've zeroed in on this one guy, Abram. So if you've ever seen The Lord of the Rings, the first, I don't know, like 15 minutes of Fellowship of the Ring is backstory. It's letting you know, here's where the ring came from, and here's Sauron, and here's the Wraith, and here's all this kind of stuff. And here's and then we zero in, land in this really peaceful guy living his life, this guy named Bilbo, right? But it takes all that backstory to kind of understand what's at stake that Bilbo has this ring, okay? At least that's the way it is in the movie, okay? It's a very similar thing happening here. In fact, somebody who writes a story like that takes cues from ancient texts, such as the book of Genesis. Star Wars, same kind of thing. You got that big opening crawl, 
right? That is letting you know, you know, here's what's happened. Here's what you need to be caught up on. Here's what's happened since the last episode. Now here's the planet. Now we're going to come down and see the war. Now we're going to come see the warriors. Now we're going to see the princess, but we don't know who she is yet. And now we're going to start to get details about what's going on in the story. Sort of the zooming in and landing on somebody seemingly insignificant that ends up being, you know, key to the rest of the story. That's exactly what's going on here in Genesis. While we do that, story-wise, over and over and over again, it is being hammered into us what God is doing, that he is separating light from darkness, he's scattering the darkness, and he's holding the light together and increasing it to abundance. We saw it in creation. We saw him trying to do it in the Garden of Eden. We see it doing him doing that with people. We see it with the family of Noah, and we're going to see that happen with Abram, with Abraham. And so that gets us to uh, Genesis chapter 12. And so let's look at that very quickly. The first few verses of Genesis 12, and I'll leave you with that tonight. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your land and your birthplace and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And I will, and uh, all the clans of the earth through you shall be blessed. And Abram went. Remember, in ancient dialogue, if the other person doesn't respond, it's letting you know something. Abram doesn't respond, he just goes. God says, Abram, go. I'm not even going to tell you where, just go, and I'll show you when you get there. And Abram goes. Abram listens and obeys. And now you see what uh, the beauty of really uh, embracing the blessing can be. God provides him with a chance for a great blessing, and Abram embraces it by listening and obeying. That's all he does. So I got to ask, what are you doing to kind of hold together the good things and increase the abundance of the good things? Are you doing like my friend Timothy did and reaching out to people and checking in on everybody and sending your love and maybe calling some people and praying over the phone or FaceTiming the grandparents or whatever? What are you doing to hold on to and increase the good things? Or are you uh, building things out of out of fear, like um, the uh, Tower of Babel? Are you building things out of, out of fear and, and pride? Or are you a restless wanderer like Cain that we saw back in uh, Genesis chapter 4? What are you doing during this time when we're all isolated, we're all at home? What are you doing to hold together to the good things and increase their abundance? One way you can figure out the things that you ought to do is to listen and obey, to sit down with your scripture, to read it, to take it to heart, and to put it into practice. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.